go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your amazing grace. And Lord, we repent that we find so many things in this trivial life more amazing than your grace. Father, we are so easily allured by the things of this world, a world that we are to be strangers in. And yet, Father, we look at and treat your grace as though it is some commonplace thing. Father, Lord, convict our hearts of not savoring your grace as we ought, of not viewing it as the greatest gift that you can give in us, that you can give us a gift that is poured out to us in none other than your one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we give thanks that it is through the knowledge of you through Christ that we have grace upon grace. Father, the breath in our lungs is your grace. The beats of our heart are your grace. The building that we come to, the cars that we came to this building with, the clothes on our back, Lord. Father, we deserve nothing but your wrath, and yet you give us grace in Jesus Christ. So, Father, convict us of not loving your grace and seeing it as amazing. And Lord, work in our hearts today by your word, Father, we thank you for your word that is given by the Holy Spirit, that is illuminated to us by your Holy Spirit. Father, we depend upon your Holy Spirit in all things here this morning. Father, may your word be the two-edged sword that pierces deep into our lives and changes us more into the image of your Son. Father, may we leave this place different than when we first came in. We pray this all in Christ's name, pleading His blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. I, as I was studying this week, I, I thought, we're almost done with 1 Peter chapter 5. Maybe I can finish the book this week. Uh, and then, no, that's not going to happen. So, um, there's still many... Even in the last few verses, there's still many, uh, many riches of God's grace to mine out of what is given to us through Peter. I, uh, this, I guess Groundhog Day was what, Thursday? Was that what it was? And the, the, the rodent saw his shadow, so that means, what, six more weeks of winter or something like that. A very reputable meteorologist, of course, this, this thing that lives in, in the dirt. Um, but I did see something I was going to put the picture up on the, on the screen, and then I'm like, uh, I just didn't get to a traveling and everything. But it was, there's this, there's this uh, page I follow on Facebook called Church Cremungeon. 
and it's this old guy or whatever. And so he put up there, it's like the pastor saw his shadow, six more weeks of this sermon series. So uh, I found that amusing. We've been looking at uh, the last, uh, last real section of the main body of First Peter and how he calls us to humble ourselves in First Peter chapter 5, verse 6. And we've been looking at the humble pilgrim. So look with me here. We'll begin in verse 6, but we're going to be mainly focusing today at verses 10 and 11 of First Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5, verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we've been looking at this subject of the humble pilgrim, and it's been, I think this is part three of looking at this particular section. And we saw, first of all, that the humble pilgrim looks to God's power. He sees God's cle- God clearly. He is a mighty God. His hand does mighty things, and then he trusts in God's plan. That this God who has a mighty uh, uh, hand and can do mighty things will bring about his plan according to his purposes. And there's great hope and trust in that reality. But as that plan is being worked out, we have a God who rests or who provides care for his people. If we see what he says, we're to cast all our anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for us. We depend on him because of his posture towards us. There is no one who cares for you like the Lord Jesus. And then we saw that we prepare in humility for spiritual battle. We recognize and prepare for the attacks of our adversary. He is the accuser. The term for devil there refers to someone who is like a a prosecuting attorney. He roars, walks about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so we resist him, but that resistance is built fully and completely in what? Faith. Firm in faith. And as we humbly face these things, we consider the suffering of all of God's people, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now, what does this all have to do with humility? He begins by saying, humble yourselves. And the fact is that Peter is constantly throughout this letter, and particularly in this section, calling us to place our hope outside of ourselves in God and not in ourselves. Pride says, I can. Humility says, God must. And so that reality is what's guiding what Peter is saying. In fact, if we were just look back at verse 5, we recognize that those who are proud, God opposes. But who receive grace? 
the humble. God gives grace to the humble. Which brings us finally to see, as we have looked to God's power, as we have prepared for spiritual battle, as we've cast all our anxieties on Him, finally the humble pilgrim bows to God's rule. The humble pilgrim bows to God's rule. It's amazing how emotions can go up and down on election night, isn't it? If you think about what happens on election night, oftentimes, depending on who you voted for, you'll either be very joyous or you might be in despair. And particularly over the last several election cycles, we've seen that over and over again. We've seen pictures of people celebrating and people downcast based upon who came to power. Now, what we're going to see Peter focusing on here as he brings us to an that brings the bulk of this letter to an end is he's going to talk about suffering. Yippee, right? I mean, we're, we're not expecting that to be sort of the, the way in which he ends this book, but yet he does it and points us to a reality that brings us joy because God is on the throne. That reality is the reality of any of person that you have hoped would be elected to office. That reality is true because who is ultimately reigning? God is. And so the joy that we know and understand when our favorite elected officials get elected, it is that multiplied by thousands of times because our good God is reigning. But that has some practical implications for us as we suffer. And so we see, first of all, that humility looks to God's perfect rule. Look at verse 10. So what, what does God ordain in that rule? Notice what he says. And after you have what? Suffered. Well, wait a second. God is ruling and reigning. He's good. He's perfect. His plan is perfect. But what does his plan include for his people? And Peter is saying it includes suffering. He assumes it. Peter assumes suffering. He again has pointed in verse 9 to our brotherhood throughout the world, the church around the world that is suffering in many times, particularly for us in our context here in America, much worse than what we're facing. You know, we, you didn't have to dodge soldiers with Uzis to get down here, did you? You didn't have to, to worry about gathering in a forest someplace because if you were caught someone might chop your head off. That is the reality for our brothers and sisters around the world. And that should humble us. We, we fear speaking of Christ to our co-workers. And these people boldly proclaim Christ with the threat of torture. Oh, that God's grace would work in us that way. So as we are privileged 
as we are privileged by God's grace to live the life we have in America today, what must we do? We must humbly bow our knees before the Father of lights of whom there is no variation or shadow of changing and pray that He strengthen our brothers and sisters around the world. And then, when we face the suffering, we humbly submit. After you have suffered a little while, Peter reminds us. Now, we don't have the time to hash out a full-fledged theology of suffering. There are many wonderful resources and books available for that type of thing. But there are just three things in particular that I want us to note about this suffering. The first is suffering will happen. It will happen. There is a dangerous and deadly doctrine making its round in evangelicalism today that says if you trust in Christ then you're going to be healthy you're going to be wealthy and everything's going to be hunky-dory that is a lie Peter is assuming that his readers will suffer after you have suffered so what should we assume we're going to suffer notice what Paul says in second Timothy to Timothy Listen, if you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, what will happen? You'll be persecuted. And while you're being persecuted, what's going to happen? There are going to be evil people, and there are going to be imposters, and things are not going to, from a spiritual perspective, get better. They're going to go from bad to what? To worse. Deceiving and being deceived. You know, it's, it's one thing to note that he refers to evil people and imposters. Now, we know evil people, all right? Those are, those are all the people outside of the church, right? But the thing that Peter is pointing to is, guess what? In, in the church, there are people who are just as evil as those outside of the church. And these imposters will go from bad to worse. The implication here is that they will not be persecuted, that they will have a hunky-dory life, that things will be easy for them. And the reason for that is because they have rejected godliness in Christ Jesus. Deceiving and being deceived. So, again, remember, who is this book written to? It's written to pilgrims, to strangers to foreigners, to exiles, to people who don't belong here. One way you can spot an imposter is if he feels at home in the world. We're not to be at home in the world. Our home is with Christ Jesus. And one way that that is seen is when we find ourselves desiring comfort and riches and wealth and ease of life more than Jesus Christ. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So when we first of all see this, we recognize that we will face suffering. Secondly, graciously, notice what Peter says about this suffering. And after you have suffered, what? A little while. Thank God for the little while. Suffering is unpleasant, it's undesirable. There's great hope that our suffering is only temporary. 
It's only temporary. Now, let's define little while biblically, all right? So we like to think of little while like, like a kid who has to get a shot, and they want it to be done as quick as possible and be done, all right? That's how we are, right? We, we, want, we want our pain to be like pulling the bandage off, and we don't do it slowly, right? We do it quickly. What is God's definition? What's the biblical definition of little while? Well, I'll tell you this. The Bible tells us that our life is but a what? A vapor. You know what a little while can be? Your entire life. Now, how can, how can I say that? Particularly if you're facing something that is extended for weeks, months, years, a lifetime. How can we say that that is a little while? And so we have to recognize that our conception of a little while is going to look different according to God's providential rule. But again, remember, what are we seeking to do? Because if we fight back and we say, God, this is too long, what, what is welling up within us? Not humility, but pride. It's my way. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying this is easy. I, I remember reading somewhere, the Bible is exceedingly clear. It's simple. It's easy to understand what the path of a Christian is, but that doesn't mean that it's going to be easy to walk that path. That's why what we're going to see in just a few moments, we need God's strength and His grace to bear us through it. And that's what Paul says. As he dealt with a thorn in the flesh for decades, what did God tell him? He didn't take it away. In fact, he tells Paul specifically that he gave him the thorn in the flesh to make him what? Humble. Because Paul got transported into heaven and got to see magnificent things. And so it, it, it was grating on Paul to face that thorn in the flesh for so long. But God said, look, I will provide grace sufficient for you. And so you know what Paul's response was? I will boast all the more of my weakness. Give me more of the suffering so that I can experience more of your grace. But there is great hope, as we're going to see in the last half of verse 10, that we're called to an eternal glory, that we're going to be restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established, that God's dominion in, it continues forever and ever. I mean, all these things take us, and when we look at the spans of eternity, our lives are... But yet we get to, in Christ, enjoy fellowship with the Father forever. So is not the suffering of our present age a little while in comparison to that glory that we will have with all things? So, I'm sorry, with Christ. So, we will suffer persecution. That persecution will be for a while. But thirdly, we have to recognize that as we suffer, we must do it with faith. Again, notice what he says in verse 9. The devil, or verse 8 and 9, the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Listen, do you think the devil is going to attack you at your strongest point? That's not what he did with Christ. Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And 
I love how the scripture just says, and he was, to use the old King James language, a hungered. I would be, I get hungry after like eight hours of not eating. And that's when the devil came and said, you're hungry. Just command these stones to be turned into bread. And so it is, as we recognize this, this lion that's roaring around seeking to devour us, he's going to attack us when we are suffering. When you are suffering, that is when you are at your spiritually weakest point, and that's when temptation is going to come in. How do you resist that temptation? You do it firm in what? Faith. The devil may begin to sow doubts about who God is. Maybe God isn't as powerful as he says he is. Maybe he's not as good as he says he is. I mean, how could a loving God allow this into the life of his child? This is why when we suffer, we must do it humbly. Faith requires humility because it casts our hope not in ourselves. We are nothing, but places it fully and completely in Christ. We trust that what Scripture says about who God is is true. As Deuteronomy 32.4 reminds us, He is the rock. His work is what? Perfect. Do you believe that? Is your faith settled in that reality, particularly when you're suffering? How about when you're facing injustice? Do you believe that God and all of His ways are justice? Jesus tells us, look, the servant's not greater than the master. If they persecuted you, they will, per if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. How can that be a good part of God's providential plan? And humility says, I don't know better than God, I just trust Him. How often do we think we know better than God? Particularly as we suffer. As John tells us in his epistle, listen, don't be surprised, brothers, that the world, what? Hates you. This is what God has providentially determined for his people. And do we humbly accept this or do we fight against it? You know, we may never know this side of eternity why we face particular sufferings. I often think of the pastor that was preaching a sermon on a cold, windy uh, day. And I, I, I feel like my history, as I've gotten to turn 40, I've noticed that my stories get jumbled up. So I might be mixing up John Bunyan's uh, salvation testimony with Charles Spurgeon's. But it's somewhere in there. I think it was Bunyan. He, he walked into a church. I, I maybe, man, I'm thinking it's Spurgeon. Anyways, Spurgeon. He walks into a church, and there's this guy who is a no-name, no, no nobody pastor. No, no, could, could you tell me who the pastor was that led Charles Spurgeon to the Lord? No. 
And most likely in that day, he probably suffered for his faith. He probably didn't have a lot of money. It was a difficult thing for him. And yet God used that pastor in the midst of that suffering, whatever it may have been, to bring Charles Spurgeon, known as the Prince of Preachers, to faith in Christ. Listen, you may never know this side of eternity what your suffering is accomplishing. But there is one thing we know. Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews writes this, speaking of human fathers who discipline us for a short time as it seems best to them. And he talks about that's not a, a, a generally enjoyable thing, all right? My father's here today. He disciplined me. I didn't like it, all right? Okay. It's not an enjoyable thing to receive discipline, but note particularly, and, and the same thing is true with discipline from our father, which includes his providential, providential ordaining of suffering in our lives. Is not God in control of everything? So why does God do it? And again, we don't know all the reasons, but notice we know one reason. He disciplines us for our good that we may share his what? His holiness. You know, one other way to think about holiness is what the effect of holiness is. It makes us strangers to this world. We don't belong. And that's what Peter's whole book is about to the exiles, the elect exiles. And so as pilgrims, as strangers, as foreigners, as those who are different from the world, our suffering is actually a means to make us even more different than the world. I mean, we all recognize Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good. We can quote it like that, but when we're suffering, suddenly that doesn't seem to make sense to some extent, right? But the suffering that we face in this life makes this world stranger to us and makes us stranger to this world. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Listen, those who are kingdom citizens, where do they lay up their treasures? In heaven. Tell that to a CEO in downtown Pittsburgh and they're going to look at you like worms are coming out of your ears. What do you mean lay up your treasures in heaven? I, I'm building an empire here. That's strange to them. What do, you, what do you mean you can do without certain things? What do you mean your pastor doesn't have a Ferrari fund at his church? The world looks at that and, and they think us odd. And we should look at the world and we should think that they're odd. Why would you want something so insignificant as the gold of this world when you have the treasure of God's grace in Jesus Christ? So, again, notice what Peter says in 1 Peter 4. This is a little bit of review. Since Christ suffered, what are we to do? Have the same way of thinking. 
forever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of their time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, here's the reality. Everyone suffers, believer or unbeliever. It's what you do to find hope in the midst of that suffering. And the believer finds that hope where? In Christ. And in Christ alone. But what do unbelievers do? They live in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Every single one of these things refers to sensuous or sensual indulgence that numbs from the pain of life. Every single one of these. You want to know how you numb yourself from the pain of life apart from Christ? Go down to the south side on a Friday evening. And that numbing takes all sorts of of levels so that now violence is becoming replete in our city. And then what does the... I mean, look at the results of that, all right? People are having... getting drunk, doing stupid things, shooting each other, getting behind the wheels of cars while inebriated, crashing into things, killing people that way. I mean, it is, it is clearly and obviously folly to try to ooze and numb the suffering of life that way. But how do they look at us who find hope in Christ? It says, notice what he says at the end of this passage. With respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them in their, the same flood of debauchery. And then what do they do? They malign you. You're not like us. How can you not be like us? Goody two-shoes. What do you mean you've never had a, dr- a drink? What do you mean you waited until marriage to have sex? What do you mean you haven't shot up or gotten high? Notice how that makes us stranger to the world. Our response to suffering is an indication of the fact that we are elect exiles. Suffering is a pathway to holiness. As Peter says in chapter 1, He who has called you is holy, so be holy in all your conduct, for it is written... You shall be holy, for I am holy. If Christ, in his humanity, found holiness through suffering, what should we seek to have accomplished in us through our suffering? Holiness. Hating sin and the world more. This is why suffering is a beautiful part of God's perfect rule but we have to approach it with humility. Humility looks to God's perfect rule, but secondly, humility hopes in God's gracious character. So again, verse 10, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 
while the news that we will suffer for a little while is, and we recognize it is divinely prescribed for our holiness that humbles us to depend upon God's providence, God is so good that he doesn't leave us to suffer alone. But he gives us grace. When God decrees suffering for the good of his people, he also provides the grace needed to face that suffering. Notice the glorious description of God's grace that he gives us here. He is the God of all grace. Listen, there is no grace that exists on this, in this universe apart from our God. No grace exists from any other source but him. He is the source of all grace. And he is also a source of abundant grace, that any grace that is needed is found in him. He's not going to run out. Over the last two, three years, how many of us have bemoaned supply chain issues? You know, you go and, you know, there was a time, this was really scary, there was a time where they were saying that you couldn't find ham, right? Talk about a supply chain issue. Thankfully, that, that did not come to fruition. But we all, know, we all know what it was like to go to the store and to try to find the, the sanitizing wipes and you couldn't find them and then you had to buy some off-brand that you had no idea if it was good or not. The, the toilet paper fiasco, remember? Oh, we can't find toilet paper. When you can't find toilet paper, you realize how important toilet paper is. I mean, we, we all know what those supply chain issues were. You needed something, you couldn't get it because it wasn't available. That is not so with the grace of God. There are no supply chain issues with God's grace. And he says the God of all grace, and then what does God do with that grace? He calls us to his eternal glory in Christ. It is by God's grace that we are redeemed, that we are called out of this world to be pilgrims and exiles. Peter is focusing on the eternal aspects of our redemption that have a current impact upon us as we suffer. Look, you are called by God's grace. Peter is referring in 1 Peter 1, the whole letter is written to elect exiles. Listen, it had nothing to do with you. It was all God's sovereign choice. And praise God He has done it. This grace of God that sets us and calls us, calls us to something, the eternal glory of Christ. So that again, we see what's at the end of this road of suffering, glory in Christ Jesus, eternal glory in Christ Jesus. As is said in Romans 8, 18, Paul says that the sufferings of this present time, they are not worth even comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so it is by God's grace that we are strengthened and carried through this suffering. And then Peter specifically speaks of two ways in which God's grace helps us as we suffer. God's grace, first of all, gives us restoration. We have renewal through restoration. Look at what he says. The God 
of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore. Will himself restore. This refers to being prepared for a task, equipped, given everything needed. Hebrews 13, 20 through 21, we see as the, as the writer there closes that book, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you. It's the same word that's used here for restore. Equip you with what? Everything good. So that you may do His will. Working in us that which is pleasing in His height sight through Christ Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever amen it's amazing to note here what as we look to God's grace and it gives us everything good that goodness is given specifically to produce within us a life that pleases him listen before Christ not one single person on this planet could please God but in Christ we are not only positionally situated to be looked upon with favor by God, we are enabled by His grace to live a life that is pleasing to Him. Isn't that amazing? When before all we could do was sin, now we can please God by His grace working in us and us submitting to that grace. All of it looking to Christ. Listen, we, we think of this power, we think of this, this grace that's given to us as something, this goodness that's just for us. No, it's given to us so that we can fulfill the most basic reason we are placed on this earth, to glorify God, which we could not do apart from His grace. So that grace restores us, and then that grace, secondly, fortifies us. There's three other verbs that are used here. Confirm, strengthen, establish. And I was, as I was studying this week, I, you know, I'm like, all right, I'm going to go in and, and mine the nuances of all the, the original languages and the choice of words that Peter uses here. And then thankfully I read a commentary and he said, the point isn't to say all the differences between this, but to emphasize that God gives us strength. I'm like, oh, that makes my study a little bit f- faster this week. And I think he's right. Confirm, strengthen, establish. Peter is using these words to emphasize how strong we are made in Christ Jesus. That grace fortifies us. It provides certainty to, our suffer, to us as we suffer. To pilgrims, there is never a suffering that will ultimately get the best of you. God's grace confirms, strengthens, establishes you in Christ Jesus. No one can pluck you out of His hand. No suffering can pluck you out of His hand. No circumstance can pluck you out of His hand. The grace of God in Christ becomes an impenetrable fortress for the believer. Now again... Is that because of how strong we are? Do we look to ourselves? No. So we accept this as a gracious gift and we do it humbly. In fact, it's an indication that of our weakness that we need this strength. In Luke 22, Peter is objecting 
to the cross. He's saying, Lord, it will never be for you that you'll go to the cross. I will die before you go to the cross. And Jesus knows in that brash, prideful statement that Peter has no idea what he's talking about. It's amazing how we see the pridefulness and the arrogance of Peter on display there. And Jesus lovingly turns to Peter and he says in Luke 22, 31 through 32, Simon, Simon, the accuser, the Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Boy, that sounds a lot like what Peter is describing here, isn't it? He eventually got the point, praise God. And then, and then look at this. I mean, are you not encouraged when other believers tell you they're praying for you? How much more the encouragement when Jesus says he's praying for you? I have prayed for you. Now, your faith may not fail. And he knows that that faith is not going to ultimately fail, but that Peter is going to deny, deny Christ not once, not twice, but three times. And he's going to do it the third time in a vulgar way. The lips that praised Christ as the Christ, the Son of the living God, will turn into cursing as he speaks his name. And then notice what he says. I've prayed that your faith may not fail. And then, and when you have turned again, he is prophesying with confidence that Peter will repent of those things. And then this just, this just blows me away. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You know what that word is? It's the same word that's given here for confirm in 1 Peter. That Peter, who is going to be weakened through his sin of rejecting Christ, will one day be used by Christ to bring about this strengthening that Peter is himself writing to them about. And so Peter, when he walks through that type of circumstance, how can you not be humble? I failed you, Lord. And yet in you, I'm restored, strengthened, confirmed, and established to face anything in this life for your glory. Hallelujah. What a Savior. The final thing that we see is that humility anticipates God's everlasting reign. Peter ends by reminding us as elect exiles, as strangers and foreigners, as pilgrims on this earth, who is really in control. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. A little while in comparison to forever and ever, there's no comparison. The final thing that Peter encourages humbly suffering pilgrims with is with the everlasting, unchallenged, unending rule of God. 
What an appropriate ending to the bulk of this letter. You know, let's be honest. It can at times feel as though this isn't true. It can feel as though this isn't true. Look at the world around us. I mean, Paul already told Timothy, people are going to go from bad to what? To worse. And we see our society decaying all around us. And listen, we've got it pretty good here in America. Go to Africa, and they're dealing with horrors that you can't even understand. Look at what's happening with Ukraine and Russia. War, death, destruction. Believers in Afghanistan and Iraq are dying for the sake of Christ. I mean, it, we, we are told that the kingdom of Christ is unending, and yet it seems that the world is winning. Who hasn't seen the onslaught of this world against basic truth and thought like, maybe I'm on the wrong side? And then we suffer as a result of that, and so it can be easy for us to feel like defeated pilgrims like refugees who are cast away from every land we seek refuge in. But then 1 Peter 5.11 comes blazing into our ears. He has eternal dominion. The kingdom of this world will one day become the kingdom of our Christ. This is the reality. This is where things will end. And no matter how bad things may seem now, Jesus wins. If you want to sum up the book of Revelation, two words. Jesus wins. And so how do we now take that reality? We have to have the mindset of Christ. What does that mindset look like? It looks like Jesus standing before Pilate. not saying any words to this pompous, arrogant, God-denying heathen. And Pilate has the audacity to say, you're not going to speak? Don't you know who I am? Don't you know who I am? I have the authority to release you, and I have the authority to crucify you. What is Jesus' mind at that point? Jesus answered him, this speck, this, this clot of dust that Jesus could have just, mm. you have no authority over me at all unless it's given you from above. And see, this is where Trust and humility in God's goodness comes into play. Because, listen, you may be facing a pilot-like issue in your life that is looming large and seeming to say it has all control, but you have to rest in the fact, as Jesus did, that that has no authority unless God gives it that authority. 
That's why Peter ends with, to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Our God is on the throne. That's why we sang, behold, our God seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. So, as we read that we will suffer for a little while, how should we as pilgrims respond to what's said here? Many of you likely remember interviewer, CNN interviewer Larry King. I say many of you because now I'm realizing I was, I was down at, at a college where people like were born or didn't know who Larry King or wasn't paying attention when Larry King was around. So I'm feeling older and older, man. This 40-year thing, it's... Larry King would often ask his guests one question at the end of their interviews as to whether or not they were, an op- whether they were optimistic or pessimistic about the future. Are you an optimist or a pessimist? And he would ask this to, to kings and rulers and, and politicians and all sorts of people. And so I'd like to ask you that question today. Are you an optimist or a pessimist? And listen, it can be easy to be pessimistic. We should open up the newspaper. We got spy balloons flying over America. We got schools peddling filth to children. We got basic truths of biology being denied left and right. The family's under constant attack. And Christ is hated more and more every day, as are his people. It can be easy to be pessimistic. But we should be optimists, should we not? To Him be the dominion forever and ever. And while things may be difficult now, I know who's on the throne. And that gives me hope. As I humbly suffer before my Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word and the truth we find in it. Lord, take it, apply it to our hearts and lives. Change us by your grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Pleading his